You know, human beings, we're a resilient group. We can face a lot of difficulties. We can face pain. We can pay, uh, face problems. And as long as we know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we are okay. We can oftentimes persevere. As long as we know that there is salvation at the end, we don't give up. But one of the things that we cannot do is live without hope. If we don't feel like there is light at the end of the tunnel, if we don't feel like there is salvation at the end, we can't not continue. An experiment was done in 1957 by a professor, Kurt Richter, in Johns Hopkins, and it might seem a little cruel, but uh, nevertheless it was done. They took a, a group of uh, lab rats, and uh, they put them in, a, in glasses filled with water to see how they would do, and these little rats would swim around trying to get out, and they would swim in circles, and obviously there's no way to get out, and about... It was, the average time was about 15 minutes when the rats would sink to the bottom and drown. But another group of rats were put into the same kind of jars, and about 15 minutes they would sink to the, uh, the bottom. But as they were sinking to the bottom to die, uh, the researcher would save them. And so they survived the little experiment. And 24 hours later, they put these same saved rats now back into the jar of water to see how they would do and they would swim around and instead of sinking down after 15 minutes they continued to swim and in fact the average time that they continued to swim was about 72 hours. So what's the difference between a group of rats that drowned after 15 minutes of swimming and a group of rats that could swim 72 hours? And the difference is that one had hope and the other did not. We can persevere a lot of things, a lot of problems, a lot of enemies if we realize that there is hope. But when we don't have hope, it becomes very bleak. Isaiah the prophet is speaking to a king and a nation that is without hope, Ahaz. Uh, the ruler of the southern kingdom of Judah uh, used his wits, his power, his wisdom, his influence, his affection, his confidence to solve many issues. But this particular problem that they were facing was uh, greater than anything that he had faced before. The kingdoms up north was against him, and there was a looming kingdom of Assyria that Bang talked about last week that was um, undefeatable. And so he was at a moment when he felt helpless and hopeless, not only for his own life, but his family and for the nation in which he was supposed to be responsible for. And in this moment of hopelessness, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and gives him a word from the Lord. These are words that you know and you may rarely read from the prophet Isaiah. So if you have not done so yet, let, uh, turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. And it's in the Old Testament... And if you run into Psalms, it's, it's after Psalms and Proverbs, and it's like the first of the major prophets, Isaiah chapter 9. And these are words you know because you've sung them during Christmas time. But you may not be aware that this is not, these words weren't really from the New Testament gospel, but really from an Old Testament prophet that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 
And let me read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah gives him hope. And I want us to talk about it, look at it in two parts. The gift of hope and the name of hope. The gift of hope. The first thing that we notice is that hope is wrapped in weakness. The hope was wrapped in weakness. We learned last week from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You know, Ahaz was facing an insurmountable enemy, and you would think that, that he would be expecting uh, salvation, a uh, hope that would be uh, wrapped in power. That what he would be looking for is a nation, um, a king, or perhaps legions of angels to conquer his enemies. But instead, what was promised to him was a baby. You know, it's interesting when Jesus was on earth, that when he displayed power, when he fed the thousands, when he healed the leper, when he cast out demons, he was popular and, and get, crowds would gather around him and, and wanted to crown him king. But toward the end of his life, when he was in weakness, when they arrested him and they were on the cross, they were shouting, crucify him and crucify him. The irony is that Jesus came in weakness, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and ended in weakness, nailed to a cross. For those without hope, God gives us hope wrapped in weakness. More than that, hope was given and not as a wage. It says that for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What do you and I normally do when we face a, a problem, an issue? I know what I do. I work a little harder because I think that really my problem stems from not having worked hard enough or not having worked smart enough. It's a lack of accomplishment, a lack of goodness on my part. So if I face a, a hopeless situation, I try a little harder. I wake up a little earlier. I push a little more. And, and I try to be a good person, hoping that that would do the trick. But oftentimes what happens is that we try and try and try. And there are these few occasions in life that no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you have been, the problem is bigger than you. And you realize that it doesn't really matter how hard you try, that you cannot solve your problem that there's no way to earn salvation. And God reminds us of this by saying to you in this hopeless situation that what you need is not a wage, 
but a gift that you did not deserve. For those without hope, God does not offer a wage, but he offers a gift. Thirdly, you know, Ahaz believed, like many of us, that when we have an issue, when we have a problem, the problem is outside of ourselves. Ahaz looked at the nations up north and said, well, that's the problem. Ahaz looked at the nations in the south, well, they're the problem. We look at our marriage and they say, well, well, he's the problem. We look at our work and we say, well, well, the company is the problem. We, we get sick and say, well, my HMO is the problem. We look at others for the problem and we think that if God somehow intervenes or if I work harder and they fix what's on the outside, that my problem will be gone. But God knew better. When God approached Ahaz and when God approached the nation of Judah at that time, he realized that their problem was not really the Assyrians or Israel, uh, or another external force, but their problem was something deeper and more permanent. Their problem was sin and death. And so God offers not an immediate solution, although there will be an immediate uh, answer, a sign, but a long-term, more eternal solution. So the prophecy given to Isaiah is not simply the prophecy uh, by Isaiah is not simply a prophecy prophecy for Ahaz and the people of that time, but it extends seven hundred two thousand seven hundred years from that point on to today. For those without hope, God gives us hope that we were not expecting, and this hope has a name, and He answers a question that many of us have when we're in those moments of despair. The questions that we oftentimes ask ourselves is, what should I do? Who can possibly save me? Will someone be there for me? Will there ever be an end to this conflict? To this, we are given these four wonderful names of the Messiah. The first is out of Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. It's a combination of two Hebrew words. The, um, a counselor is a word that says it is someone who advises or instructs or guides, but a little bit different from a therapist. But this particular kind of counselor is someone who has authority. You know, uh, oftentimes, I, I, just as a pastor, people would come to me, ask me questions or ask for counsel. And, uh, and my wife and I oftentimes would, would uh, meet with people and, and counsel. And I'll be completely honest with you, and, you know, I can be honest with you guys, right? And, and don't be too offended, but most of the time when people are asking for counselor, they're just asking for stupidity, right? Because they already know the answers. You, haven't you ever talked to a friend who's asking you for counsel? But really, they know the answer. And they're either trying to uh, have you tell them that they're being stupid or have you affirm their stupidity? But they most of the time know the answer. Very few, very few times do they not know the answer. They're really looking for an answer. And during those times, you know, we gather our years of ministry experience, my knowledge of the Bible, my network of friends and pastors that I know, and my, my strategic mind, my wife's empathetic heart, and, and whatever else we can. And we try to give our best counsel hey, perhaps you ought to look at it this way. Perhaps this is one thing you can try to do. But once in a while, once in a while, we would sit with someone, we would ask questions, we would hear their stories, and, and at the end, 
We don't have an answer. We really don't. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to guide. Like almost every option seems filled with a dark tunnel without a light at the end. And it is not a cop-out when I say this, but there are those moments when we say, perhaps the only thing we can do is take it up to the Lord in fasting and praying. And it is not a cop-out because, listen, God sees our issues from a perspective that we do not see. He sees our issues from the beginning of time to the end of time. He sees our future around the corner and around the corner of that corner. He sees the hearts of people around me, and he sees the the motives that, that drive us at times. And so when we are sometimes faced with an issue, we come to not a counselor, but a wonderful counselor. So, uh, that, that, that counselor is someone that is beyond words, wonder-filled. Someone who not only has an eternal divine perspective, but one who can interject himself if needed. The title that is that the name that hope has is that of wonderful counselor. The second name is that of mighty God. We already know that this Emmanuel is God with us, but mighty God highlights this one attribute of God is it's his strength. That this Emmanuel, this uh, God, uh, God with us, is bigger. And more powerful than any problem, any pain, any struggles that you or I will go through. And in fact, he's trying to remind Ahaz, as he did in verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder, this Messiah who will come. Uh, the, the burden that you have for the nation, this Messiah can have it on his shoulders. Or verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God is bigger than any problem uh, that we will ever encounter, although it may not seem like it to us. You know, a long time ago when you were growing up or when we were raising children, remember there was a, a, a series of uh, Christian vi- uh, videos called Veggie Tales. Remember that? You guys showed Veggie Tales to your kids or you, some of you watched Veggie Tales? I don't remember too many songs. I remember there was a cucumber and a tomato, right? Those are the primary characters, Right? Um, but there was this particular song that I remember. I thought it was catchy. I thought it was cool. I thought it had a profound theological point. It went something like this. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. Right? That's a great song. Right? And we play that on the video uh, for our kids. And, and we love it because what, we're trying to, what we were trying to uh, teach our kids is, look, child, the things that you fear, the boogeyman, Godzilla, or the monsters on TV, they're not real. They're imaginations. And your God is bigger than the 
the God of the, the monsters of your imagination. That's what we are trying to communicate, right? But what if the things that they fear are not things out of their imagination, but real things? So as we grow up, we realize that Godzilla is a Japanese animatronics. And there is no such thing as a boogeyman or monsters on TV, but there are things that, as adults, we are deathly afraid of that paralyze us. And perhaps we should sing the song to ourselves, but in a different way, God is bigger than our family fights. He's bigger than our credit card bills or the sickness in ourselves. Oh, God is bigger than the sin in you, and he's watching out for you and me. And I wonder if we really believe that we have a mighty God. God is bigger than any of the problems that we harbor in our hearts. And in our moments of hopelessness, no matter how dark our enemy or situation uh, seems to be, God is reminding Ahaz, as he's reminding us today, that you have a mighty God. The third name that he gives uh, to us as a reminder of hope is this, that we have an everlasting Father, I love this particular name of God, the Everlasting Father. These past week, I've been reminded all the more how broken sometimes people are because of father wounds. The pains that people have over their upbringing and their dads in particular leaves a handprint in them. J.D. Greer, in his message from the Summit Church, um, that he adopted, um, and he adopted these four types of dads who leave wounds in their kids. He got it from a book called Father Factor. Uh, I, I changed the, the, the words uh, so that it's a little bit more uh, sensible to us, but there are four kinds of fathers that leave wounds in their kids. The first is the demanding father, the demanding father. You know, he's the kind of dad who never seems to be satisfied with what you have done. He may not have abused you or have been absent, but there was this silent or a verbal pressure you to achieve. You couldn't help but be compared to the smartest kids in your uh, sphere of knowledge or people who have achieved far greater than you can ever possibly achieve. You try and try and try to live up to the standard that he has set for you, but it never seems to be enough. You're in constant tension, anxiety within yourself, and you kind of come to this conclusion, I will never be good enough. And you've always longed for the day when your dad would put his arms around you with a warm embrace and say to you, I am proud of you. The second kind of dad, father who leaves wounds, is the angry father. You know, it may have been the result of alcohol or drugs or perhaps just the difficulties of life. And he may have been okay the majority of the times, but there were these moments when your father would be angry. 
And he could have been set off by something innocuous, but he blows up and uh, it may result in verbal or psychological and sometimes even physical abuse. And the family would kind of learn to get out of father's way and to not set him, uh, tick him off. Children grow up under angry fathers can develop all sorts of uh, wounds, including a disorder um, that causes them to be control freaks. You see, they grow up realizing that if I do this wrong, my dad's going to be angry. And so I, I don't want him to get angry at me or my family, so I'm going to do my best to not make any mistakes. And there are times when you wish, as you observed other families, that your dad would just come and chill and say to you, relax, you're good, just as you are. The third kind of father that leaves wounds is the distant dad. He may not have been abusive or overbearing, but, and, and he may have been around but for a different reason, maybe it was the cultural difference. Maybe because he was working so many hours. Uh, or maybe he was just too tired. But he was distant, disconnected. He would oftentimes leave parenting to the mom or even um, left it up to yourselves. The, the author of the book, Father Factor, said that, it, that families between the years of 1945 and 1980, and if you grew up within that period of time, you'll kind of understand what I mean. Bet- families between that time, he said, that about 50% of the nuclear families had dads who were emotionally disengaged, distant. Many of you know an athlete by the name of Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, Bo can do it all, right? He was one of the few uh, people in history to ever have played professional baseball and professional football in like one season, during the same season. Uh, A tremendous, and people still talk about him as potentially being uh, the best uh, best athlete ever. You think that... Someone like Bo Jackson has nothing to be jealous of, but this is what he said in a Sports Illustrated interview in 1995. My father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Can you imagine? Here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes in the country, and I'm sitting in the locker room and envying every one of my teammates whose dad would come in and talk, have a drink with them after the game. I never experienced that. For those who grow up with this distant dad, you long for the day when your father would come look you in the eye and say, I delight in you. I just take joy in you. The, fi- the final kind of fathering that oftentimes leaves wounds is the absent father. The absent father. Uh, America right now 
Statistics show that 40% of children grow up in fatherless homes. Whether it be children born out of wedlock or, or, or families that experience divorce or whatever the reason may be. But an interesting thing happens to the psyche of a child whose father is no longer there. The child believes the absence of their father is a personal rejection of them. That my father has rejected me. They grew up thinking that it's them, their fault. Counselors say that this often manifests itself in a background sadness, like, a, like this background music that's constantly playing in the back of your mind, back of your soul. There's this fear of unloneliness, a nagging suspicion in their lives that anything good that happens will just simply go away soon. There's an emotional stuntedness that comes alongside of you. And we, those with absent fathers, wish that our dads would come and say, I love you more than you can imagine. Look, I know some of you grew up in homes with wonderful fathers, but at the same time, I believe the majority of us, if not all of us, have grown up with fathers with one of these characteristics, if not a combination of them, because all of our fathers are broken and sinful. And they themselves are wounded in some ways. And, and some of us are crippled with this idea of, well, because my father was like that, I am just permanently broken. I can never be healed. And in those moments of hopelessness, I, we become even more in despair. I want to remind us that our fathers were never, listen carefully, our fathers were never ever supposed to fill us um, with all of the soulful, emotional, spiritual needs that we have. Rather, our fathers were supposed to be simply a warm-up act to point us to our Heavenly Father. And it is our Heavenly Father who is supposed to be all of that for us. After the 9.30 service, the second service, I was talking to one of the home builders, the, the moms here, and how her and her husband both experienced felt like they had father wounds. And she talked about her own woundedness. How when she was growing up, that uh, her dad uh, abandoned her sister and her and her mom because he ran off with another woman, a younger woman. And she thought she was okay until in her 30s when she went to some sort of a... uh, Recover a grief recovery session. She thought she was supporting a friend, but as she was uh, in the midst of that, she realized how angry she was still at her dad for having abandoned them. And it wasn't until her mid-30s she came to a realization that her real father is her heavenly father. And she said in her own words that it was then that I realized that I can... I can, go, I can climb onto the lap of my heavenly dad and call him daddy 
Listen, all of you dads here, you know, I, I know we're all messed up. We, we all display a certain part of this distantness, this, uh, this um, moments of anger, moments of uh, absence, uh, a moment of uh, domineering. But our job was never to be the perfect father. And if you and I try, we will fail. But I want you to know that as fathers, our job is not to be a perfect father, but our job is to point our children to the one and only perfect father. And God willing and gracious, God gracious us with that. With that. The fourth and final name that he gives us is that of the Prince of Peace. Ahaz was worried about his immediate war and conflict, really, but God knew that his conflict was really against, uh, not against flesh and blood. But it is something more lasting, and it is that which God is bringing greater peace to, not a temporary peace, but a permanent restoration to his relationship with a God. Seven hundred years after Isaiah made this particular promise, there was some immediate um, fulfillment of that in Ahaz and in Judah's lifetime. But some seven hundred years later, a group of angels came down to a group of blue-collared um, shepherds working on the field. And on Luke chapter two, verses eleven and twelve, this is what they said to him, to them. For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And this Jesus becomes hope for those who have no hope. Jesus is our wonderful Savior, a wonderful counselor for those who have no hope. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. For those who have no hope, Jesus is our mighty God. As he tells us in Revelation 21.16, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To those without hope, Jesus is our everlasting Father who says in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For those without hope, Jesus is our Prince of Peace as he says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Listen, hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. You know, sometimes our problems, our pains don't make any sense to you or to those around you or those who love you. And you can muster all of your energies and effort and you can try harder, but it doesn't seem to make a difference at times. You know, there are times when that any kind of solution that you can dream up doesn't seem to, to make any sense. But I would ask you, I would tell you and I would admonish you that as 
Isaiah did to Ahaz, he does to you today. That hope has a name, and it is in Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. And clinging on to Jesus sometimes won't make any sense but you get on your knees and cling to Jesus. You open up his word and read his words. You open your heart up and think, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Would you take a minute right now as the band comes in, would you take a 